This is More Than Therapy Podcast. More Than Therapy. This is More Than Therapy. More Than Therapy Podcast. This is More Than Therapy. More Than Therapy Podcast. This is More Than Therapy Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of More Than Therapy. Today, my special guest is Jenna Smith. Jenna Smith is a human being expert. I find that term <laughs> very, very interesting, especially during this time, as we need more clinicians, more people to help us in this way. Jenna is a trained in spiritual psychotherapy because what we learn in school often doesn't translate what's needed in reality. In my training, they always said stay away from the spirit, that just focus on the mind. But we know now years later that it's the mind, body, soul connection, basically holistic healing that's needed in order for a person to be better. Jenna, what, what inspired you to focus on the spirit of man in regards to wellness? I knew that's what was true. I knew that anything other than that entire experience, because I'd always been tuned in as a, at a very young age. I'd been an empath. I could feel deeply. I could feel beyond thoughts and words and stuff that people were saying. So to not include that made absolutely zero sense to me. And I don't do things that don't make sense to me or that don't, not just sense, not just from the mind, but don't feel right. I didn't want to put people in boxes and I wasn't interested in um, reducing myself or others into labels. Spiritual psychotherapy, not a term, at least out here in the East, that we hear a lot. In fact, honestly, I've just heard of it today. <laughs> it was like, I was like, do I do this? Do I do that? And then I, and I found this training. So yeah. Is spiritual psychotherapy for those that don't know. And I'll be honest today. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So spiritual psychotherapy is embracing that there's more to us than just the mind and just the chemicals and just our past and just our relationship. So, you know, as you know, traditional psychotherapy is going to really narrow in on you know, this came from this experience when you're young. And that's true a lot of the time, but there's other elements, you know, the dark night of the soul could be in a clinical sense called depression, but it's actually an awakening, an experience that more layers and levels are happening to recognize those energetic phenomenon as a human being, which is why I say human being, um, the being element of the humanness um, is imperative for mental health. It's imperative for thriving. It's the life force. It's the animation. And, and I don't, uh, have one way of how I see spirit. I embrace always many rivers to the same ocean of anybody's individual experience of their connection. And I think that's really important as well, but it is imperative in our thriving. And it's even if it's just boiled down to consciousness or energy, that there's an element of animation that's occurring and that we can use that for our health and wellness. And we can use that as wisdom. And I call it resourcing when we're in challenge, when it's bleak, when it's just 
this world, this day, and it's, it is hard. Um, that other element of energy, this, this heightened experience that we can access can give us what we need when, when all we can see is just what's hard. Indeed. Indeed. You are a Reiki master or is it Reiki? You're a Reiki master. Reiki, Reiki. Reiki. Yeah. <laughs> You're a Reiki master. Here, you know, we do have clinicians that do specialize in Reiki, but it's almost like pseudoscience or, you know, the medical professionals, the mental health professionals don't necessarily want to refer someone to that particular practitioner as they don't believe in it. Tell mm -hmm. me about Reiki. 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 So Ray, Ray, Key, Ray is spiritually guided. Key is life force energy, Japanese origins. And I learned this when I was 15. So this was part of when, you know, this loops back to your first question of why spiritual, why? Because my life was like, okay, my, you know, my dad uh, had a standoff with the police and went to jail. And in a small town, this was, this was the information everyone had. Um, so I, I had repressed a lot of emotions and I had no way to deal with any of that, um, back then and met synchronistically. And this is, this is like why I live my life by this as well. Now, um, a music store owner, I was mentioned to singing music store owner was like, I'm going to go do this Reiki training. And someone had mentioned this word to me, never heard it before. And when I was 15, I'm 39 now, this wasn't as popular as it is right now um, by a master healer that happened to be my friend's boyfriend's dad says the word two weeks before. And I pay attention to stuff like this now more than ever back then. I was like, Oh, interesting. I'm just going to lean into that. And when I met this woman, she could see through all of my layers and all of my stuff. I've got this together. I don't need you 16 year old stuff, 15, 16. And, um, I worked with her and it, it helped me. It helped me tremendously. Um, you know, just even receiving from somebody and having, having this energy flow through my body differently. I just felt it. So I know it, I know experientially the, the lightness it brought to a lot of heavy experiences I was having Reiki as a practice is an access point in, in my opinion. So it's like, a lot of people are doing Reiki now because it's it's connecting you to, again, in my opinion, what you can always connect to. Like, I don't feel like you have to do a Reiki class to connect to life force energy, but it's enough that it's a modality that we could use to trust and to just follow the steps and put your hands in a certain place to allow that flow to come through because you've been taught something. But I do believe all of us can access this energy. It's for us all. It's, it's like rain falling down. It, like that's accessible for you just as much as this energy is. So Reiki as a practice to help with challenge just allows your energy to flow better. Um, and when your energy flows better, and I mean, this isn't, so even if Reiki isn't recognized scientifically, you look at Chinese medicine, it is profoundly sophisticated and legitimate um, the, the channels of energy and that when they're flowing, your brain works better. When your brain works better, your mood is better and you can deal with life better. So the flow of energy is well documented as something that's legitimate. Um, and so for psychotherapy and stuff like that, I wouldn't just do Reiki. 
I wouldn't just have this one weekend course of how to let energy flow by any means when you're dealing with complicated life issues, but it is very helpful. I know it to be helpful based on my own experience with it. I first had an experience with it, I think it was around 2010, 2011. And it was amazing. It was almost, you know, I was a little skeptical. I was like, mm, this is just a, a light touch massage. She's, she's tricking me. <laughs> I was such a skeptic. But when I went there, she just, I don't know, I was going through an internal battle, you know, nearing burnout in my career. Okay. And she just lifted something off me that gave me a clearer path to where I needed to go and what I needed to do and to be more purposeful in my pursuit of it, not being bogged down by, for lack of better term, spiritual demons or things that I had no control over. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, the lightness, right? Spiritually guided life force energy. So the lightness to the weight so that you could deal with it right you said clarity you know the other the other word when you're speaking of that is intuition access to that voice of truth that is always there but if it's gunked up we can't hear it but it's always there please tell the audience about your work in ontology Okay. So ontology is not oncology. That's the first thing that people are like, oh, you're, you're a cancer doctor. I'm like, that makes me feel very fancy and accomplished. But no, <laughs> I, am, I am an ontological coach and ontology, um, again, came to my own life. This is all stuff that I have went through myself and used myself and got results from. And then I grow and share that with others. So for me, I was 29 and I had the Reiki training and I had worked with shamans as well and connected to, you know, nature medicine and connecting to spirit on that level Two psychotherapy degrees at this point. I was doing personal training to make money while I was building these other things. So I had all these things going on, but I didn't feel whole. I didn't feel like I was like really in my rhythm. And so then I found this ontological coach trainer. Now I was looking into life coaching as a thing to balance the psychotherapy training because I wanted not just what's happened in the past, not just healing what's broken. Um, and the psychotherapy now is much more than that. But at the time, that's what it felt like for me. I wanted to know how to create my life to be my fullest expression, not just heal what I thought was broken. So that's how it came into my life was looking for a legitimate coach training that was deeper than just do exercise and drink water or those are great things, but I wanted a deeper dive. So ontology is how you relate to reality creates your reality. And so a simple example of that is, is, um, you know, if I relate to dating, dating, um, I see this with some clients, right? Like, Oh, I always attract jerks or something like that. Or I always get used or I, you know, but that's, that person has a strong relation to this is what dating is. This is how men are. So how they, he or she is relating to reality is perpetuating her experience or his experience of reality. And that can sound like, well, what does that really mean? So then what can happen is like, we're like, well, what if more possibilities could occur? What if, um, 
you know, you leave you, you know, you flip it around. Um, what if you, um, are flaky with yourself, you know, and then like you're experiencing that. What if you don't have enough self-esteem to really receive from somebody? What if you don't think you're worthy enough and you start to get at the projector rather than the screen. So like in a, in a film, right, there's the movie projector and then there's the screen. So ontological coaching is looking at how, how our experience of reality and how we think of reality is creating our experience of reality. And from that level, change those levels, like kind of like another metaphor is ones and zeros of a computer program that are creating the experience not just changing the conditions or changing the circumstances of something. So it's a really deeper transformational type of coaching that can transform your life because you're working from you. Indeed. And I know this to be true just from my own experiences. Like you mentioned before, Peru, India, Africa, Ireland, and North America mm -hmm. took trainings and lessons and experiences from all these places. Tell me about these world experiences and becoming the great clinician you are today and how they contributed to it. As Western ideology is very locked into a box versus the world has a, a gambit, a treasure trove of tools for wellness, please. Right. And, and that's the thing. And so it, it's about getting out of the box and seeking i think we go through we all go through phases of seeking and that seeking is a beautiful phase it's like there's got to be something more and sometimes it's an uncomfortable agitation of like there's as you try to find it and so um you know the biggest thing about all of those places is they were either i was called to go to them or that teacher or mentor found me so while i was looking for there's got to be another way I was also magnetizing. Um, so I wasn't overly seeking. There was this element of, you know, the right teacher at the right time. So the biggest example I would say would, would be in the world of um, shamanic healing. So working with indigenous healers all over the continents and seeing how they all thread together without, before there was internet, how the healing element had so many things in common with other continents, uh, all this um, unity of how they heal and respect the earth and respect this and move the energy that there was this continuity of methods that made me feel like, well, this is, this is very legitimate in a way that like, as long as humans have been on the planet on every continent, they've been practicing certain things that just work. And then when I learned about ontology and philosophy, and eventually as I spanned out, it actually got smaller. It was, it was like, oh, okay, we're all connected to the earth. Oh, okay. Um, how I treat myself is going to directly enhance my relationships. And so that deep self-love comes from such a deeper place. And then the relationships get enhanced, not change the relationships. So by expanding out, what actually happened was it got really dialed in to principles that just work. Human beings are very sophisticated, but we're all the same and want the same thing. And we're all connected and we all want like deeply, maybe not everybody 
has access to this, but they know they want to feel good, right? Like they want to feel good. They want to matter. They want to know their life is on purpose. And if we can all just see that, we could work together. So there's this, the, for me, experiencing all these different teachings of all the different places without needing to look for it, and it's how it came to me, I could just see that, okay, if this is what works, I'm just going to simplify and not compl- and not keep looking and not keep searching outside of myself, but just do what works, do what works for me as I'm keeping that magnet open. So if there's more information that needs to come, it'll come, but it's all been simplified for me. And I think this wonderful goal of um, not excitement and not looking for the next thing and not that sort of Western, bigger, better, blah, 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 blah. Um, and starting to get really curious more so of what makes me, me, what makes me thrive, what brings me peace. And ironically, as you do that yourself, and as I do this with my clients, it ripples out in their lives. So finding all of this information actually allows it to be more simple. Indeed, indeed. Thank you for the work that you do. Some people tend to be the be all to all, everyone but themselves. I have a few friends, one in particular that this really sticks out with. How do you and your work assist someone who is everything to everyone, but not enough for themselves? Those are those are my main clients. <laughs> Do I have that on my on my information? Um, uh, they're in they're stuck at they're usually stuck in an identity of this is success. So at some point in their life, okay, success is um, be the helper or um, be the achiever or um, be the smart one or be the caring one or whatever that identity is. It's like it starts to become heavy armor after a while. And they just want to be, they also want to receive. So acknowledging that, you know, and then also acknowledging the resentment that starts to build up that then you feel guilty about of like, what about me? How come I don't receive at the level I give? And flipping that around starts with that first awareness of like, oh yeah, I don't receive the way I give. And if you go deeper, well, why is that? Well, oh, like for me, it was, I, I really, uh, it never happened for me with my parents. My parents weren't, um, you know, I always felt like the adult. I always felt like I had to do it. Like I had to emotionally carry everything. So I didn't feel, I had to decide at a young age, that's not even possible to get my needs met. Cause it was emotionally too difficult to deal with that as a young child. So it became an identity. Oh, I'm the giver. And that gives me, and that makes me feel good. That And that works for a while, but it's imbalanced because as a giver, as a genuine giver, we know how good it feels to, to help others. So then you become this one-sided thing and then you don't let people in really. So that deep satisfaction is also a gift to the other people in your life. But I feel like the exploration for that type of person really comes from tuning into what really matters to you and how do you want to feel and what do you deserve and then allowing those those desires to be worthwhile allowing them to exist like here's my boundaries 
these are the things that make me happy. And you know what? I need more time. Actually, I can't get there for 12 o'clock. You know, this incessant needing to help or always be on um, and starting to find what your own sense of success is, what your own sense of deep fulfillment and not just success, but deep fulfillment and completeness um, and, and making that matter, making that matter. I think that journey for high achievers is really huge. Like, okay, well, what do you, but what do you really want? And what do you, what's missing for you and, and getting underneath that? Cause that's vulnerable and they're not used to being vulnerable. They know the steps to get success, but when that stops working and that's not satisfying anymore, it's a very difficult transition to start to be like, but I matter and my deep fulfillment is enough. And then you can do the things and that they, they feel like it's like either, or it's peace or success. Um, and you can have both. Mm, 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 mm. You spoke to my soul on that one. Oh, man. Yeah. Makes me feel like I should have talked to you a long time ago. <laughs> 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 but it's right on time, right on time. Get what you need when you need it. That's how the yeah. universe works, supposedly. Yes, yes. Positive thinking. You know, they say the brain, you positive affirmations of the brain, you focus on the positive, then mm -hmm. things will start malingering or changing in such a way to manifest what you need. Mm -hmm. I didn't say it as pretty as you will. Can you go, can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> positive thinking? Mm-hmm. Like you find yourself wishing and hoping for something. You start imagining it, you know what I'm saying? Uh, let's say um, visual, yep. visualization yep. of it, guided learning, guided thinking on it. Yeah. I know in my world, you know, a lot of people have negative thinking. They they label themselves. I'm an addict. I'm schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. I'm bipolar. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But I teach them, mm -hmm. you're not the label. You are not the diagnosis. Yeah. It's the attribute of you that you can conquer and get past. Yeah. But even professionals identify themselves with that. I'm this, I'm that, I'm doing, and even if they don't have a label for it per se, they take on the identity of it per se. And then they find themselves burning out. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. If they can only think differently. They could be differently, right? And that that is true. So there's two parts to this. So I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about positive thinking because we are human beings. And when I say that human being expert thing, um, it's, it's not to say I know everything about everything. It's that human, the human emotion and mind and physical body, right? This humanness and being, you know, that they, they come together. So just positive thinking can actually split you off from your entire experience. It actually can create, um, some rejection of like, it's not okay. Um, it's not okay to think this, it's not okay to feel that. So, so it's important in creative visualization and accessing your imagination and participating with creation. And these are words I'll use because I think, positive thinking has been misunderstood as be positive all the time, feel happy all the time. And then when you don't, what the, they always feel something's wrong with them. And so that's what I've noticed is that's the misunderstanding of positive thinking is it's not to feel happy all the time, but it's to recognize that you have a capacity to participate with reality, the ontological thing to participate with creation by directing your attention and directing your mind 
and awareness, which we all have the power to do, even if it's small, even if it's short lived, if you can direct it to one image of like, you know, for some people, their only goal would be to wake up and want to live, you know, wake up and be like, okay, today, you know, I feel okay. And if you're stuck on positive thinking, like too hyper, too much, that could feel too far away. But if you can get to, so, so there's a few layers to it. It's like having your goal, having your intention be accessible to you. Like I, you know, I don't know how I'm going to get there to just feel okay, but I'm going to imagine what that would feel like a couple of times. I'm going to, I'm going to intend that it could happen, you know, and kind of coax your way there without completely denying that some part of you doesn't believe it at all. And so I feel like um, positive visualization and participating with creation is an element of your being. And so your humanness is experiencing depression and fatigue and all this kind of stuff. And to try to have it feel really good isn't necessarily going to be realistic. But then you have your beingness that's always tuned in, access to possibility beyond time and space, beyond what you can see if you can only see through one, one lens, if you can only see through the lens of your mind, which is what's in front of you and what has been the lens of your imagination and your spirit and all of that kind of stuff is going to see beyond time and space. It's going to see beyond the limitations you can see. And so imagination is your bridge to just don't worry how it's going to happen. Don't even think about how, just what would it be like if it did? And to play and tune your imagination just by participating with it allows you to start to expand into your being and let it come into your humanness, which is going to allow for more levity. It's going to allow for you, again, I use the word to be resourced in your challenges. And now life is doable, at least, because for some people, that's the goal to be at least doable. You know, it might not be to have the best day ever. Like maybe the goal is just to be okay today. And that's a beautiful goal. And what would that look like? And what would that feel like? So that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Tell people how or what to do or what it would take in order them to work with Jenna. Well, my, I see my website is dancing across the screen. So jennasmithcoaching.com. Um, so, I mean, if this feels like something you like, I have great free tips. I have a downloadable journal prompts and um, on my courses section, it'll take you to teachable and there's free body sensation, free heart breathing. So if these principles are appealing to you, there's that. If you feel like you want to genuinely transform your life, you can also book a call with me on there. Um, so, and then you can also chat with me on the website. So there's lots of ways of accessing me through jennasmithcoaching.com. And yeah, that's kind of how people find me is they're just like, what you said made sense. And, you know, I was looking for that and, you know, and if it's not feasible to do one-on-one -on -one stuff, like there's a lot of free content that's going to help get you started and get you going and, you know, bringing these being muscles and strengthening your vibrational muscles so that you have tools for life. Oh, muted. And you teach courses as well. Can yeah. You some of the courses you teach. 
Yeah. And are they available via um webinars or Zooms or tell you know on, you know online? Because I do see that you stay on the West Coast. Yes. Yes. Um, oh no, actually <laughs> I'm, I want to be in California right now, but I'm mm. in Canada. I'm in Southern Ontario, Canada right now. Um, so for courses, you'll see the, you are the manual course is available. And that are, that is the beginning of these principles. I now call the resourcing method, which will be the new course available next year. Um, so if you join my list, which is when you get the journal prompts, you'll get access to when the new courses are becoming available. What I'm doing right now are micro courses. So how to deal with anger, how to this, how to that, how to um, mend a broken heart. And just so that there's just these little bits of information for people based on what they're experiencing, you know, depression, anxiety. So I'm creating micro courses. So if you join the list, you'll get access to when those are coming out. And some of them will be free. Some of them will be like nine bucks or something. You're muted again. Okay. <laughs> Well, thank you for coming on the More Than Therapy podcast. Please, mm -hmm. some words to transition us. Some final words. <laughs> um, I think what I'd like to say to people right now in this current COVID world is to not plan too hard, too far ahead, and to get really dialed in on today. Get really focused on today. There's a lot of noise. And what you can do is decide who you want to be today and how you want to be today. And that's powerful. So in a lot of stuff going on right now, we don't feel powerful and we feel like a lot is out of our hands. And you can switch that up very quickly. Who do I want to be today? How do I want to feel today? And don't worry if you don't feel it yet. Just start there and come back to yourself. And that will ripple out into the other areas of your life. Indeed. And once again, thank you, Jenna Smith. For those that are interested, and I'm sure you will be, in learning more about Jenna Smith and her practice and what she brings to the table regarding wellness, especially that regarding the spiritual realm, please go to www.jennasmithcoaching.com, www.jennasmithcoaching.com. Be well, be great. Hello, and welcome to another edition <laughs> Another edition. Wait a minute. <laughs> How do you say it? Yeah, I figured out. We'll start again. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of Modern Therapy Podcast. Today we have Dr. Eddie. Caparucci, I might be saying that wrong, please correct me, of Abundant Life Counseling, who specializes in treating problematic sexual behaviors, including pornography. He works with men who struggle by challenging them to understand why they feel, think, and behave the way they do. Him and his wife, together, they embark on a journey of transformation that goes far beyond simply removing the addictive behavior and leads to the transformation of the new guy. Dr. Eddie is the creator of the unique inner child recovery process for the treatment of problematic sexual behaviors. And Dr. Eddie is the author of the inner child recovery process for the treatment of sex porn addiction. Dr. Eddie's been a very busy, busy man. Dr. Eddie, please tell us 
why is it important for people to resolve their sexual issues, men specifically? Well, first and foremost, one, you did a wonderful job on my last name, Caparucci. Great. <laughs> um, it, it's important because what happens when men are have a stronghold, sex has a stronghold on their lives, it impacts many different areas of their life. It's not just them themselves, but it's also their relationships. It could impact what they're doing from, from a work perspective or perhaps from a school perspective because the obsession with the with sexual thoughts and fantasies are just so predominant that that becomes the only thing that they really seem to zero in on. Um, so therefore, we need to work with them to help them to remove this stronghold they have that, that is over them so that they can feel more of a sense of peace as well as their loved ones. Because it is tragic to see what happens, you know, with a, with a guy who's struggling with a sex addiction, a porn addiction, and the impact it has on their relationship with their spouse who is devastated because they're thinking, you know, oh, he wants something else. He wants someone else. I'm not good enough. Indeed. Men, typically, especially in, in, from my experience, the people I worked with, as was myself, we have to suppress our sexuality in ways we have to, the society tells us to be sexual in one way, but when trauma happens to us, when something bad happens to us sexually, whether we are exposed to sex much too early or whether we're abused or molested, we have to suppress those feelings as society and culture tells us, you're not supposed to be so emotional, you're not supposed to be a crybaby or anything. This suppression leads to a high addiction rate, to a high emotional destability, destability, as I've seen and I've also experienced myself. How, what do you do to help them resolve these issues in order to move forward and having the best life they can have that's not impacted by the tumultuous past? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And it is something that I have really dedicated most of my uh, career as a counselor to doing. But I believe that recovery from a sex or a porn addiction isn't just about let's stop, let's teach you how to stop doing the bad behavior. That's one element. But see, there's another element that's involved. I find that in my practice, nine out of 10 men who come to see me also have what I call a low emotional IQ. They, they struggle to identify what they, what they truly feel. They can tell me if they're, if they're angry, if they're sad, if they're happy. Okay. They can tell me those kind of things, but they can't tell me what they're truly feeling. And even if they could, they have a very difficult time expressing it because there's a fear that, oh, you know what, expressing my emotions, like you just said, it, it, it's something you're taught not to do. And they also have a difficult time if people try to express their emotion uh, because their anxiety increases and they want to just shut it all down. So, you know, that is part of the whole new book that I just wrote, who just released it, we call Why Men Struggle to Love overcoming relational blind spots. And I've identified 14 different relational blind spots that men have 
that prevent them from really being able to love. But we we'll go back to the point that you made. If when we deal with trauma and we deal with neglect in our lives, especially the neglect where parents do not teach us what we need to learn in order to be able to create healthy relationships. For example, they don't teach us how to attune to another person, how to be able to pick up what is that person feeling, you know, or and, and be able to relate to it. They don't teach us how to sit with emotional distress, which I think is the number one problem for any kind of addiction. We cannot sit with emotional pain. So therefore, you find an escape to be able to manage it. So we're not taught that. Not taught how to be empathetic. We're not taught to be able to look outward at what other people need. We're very me-focused because, again, we're emotionally immature. The, we don't learn to trust. It's kind of hard to trust if you're being raised by people who are being neglectful or abusive. And then we can't learn to emotionally regulate in many cases. We're not taught that. And finally, we're not taught how to emotionally connect. We, they don't see the model. I know I didn't see the model, you know, when I was growing up. So we don't know. And what becomes the driver for men to connect is physical intimacy. Because they believe that physical intimacy is the best way to show how much I love you. But more importantly, for them, when somebody's physical with them, they feel so loved. They feel so connected and bonded. But that's not a real relationship. A real relationship is built on emotional intimacy. Indeed, indeed. And thank you for that perspective. And I admire your cup. I have a lot of friends that went to that university. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Pain. We suppress it. We, we try to eliminate it. We try to do things in order to avoid feeling it. Right. You're an addiction specialist as well. Masking the pain only causes or seem to cause more pain as you go deeper into your addiction, you start losing the connections that are important to you to be well, such as your loved ones, such as your stability, your job, your housing, many in many aspects. Mm -hmm. Why do you feel that society has put us in a corner in so many ways and how can we get out of that corner when it regards to our own emotional wellness as men? Well, I think first and foremost, Felipe, is the idea that we need to understand we have the problem. See, so many men are oblivious to the fact that they have a low emotional IQ. They're oblivious to the fact that they're not able to sit with their emotional distress because they've been doing that since they were young children. They've been learning how to escape and run away from it. Back then, it was too much TV, uh, too much food, too much fantasy of, oh, I'm a professional athlete or someone important. And now as adults or even in teenage years, they find porn, they find drugs, they find alcohol, keep going. And even as now adults, they continue those, plus they become workaholics sometimes or just busy. I have to stay busy. The more busy I am, then I don't 
think about other things. But the problem is they don't understand that's what their objective is. They don't realize. They just think, hey, I'm just a BB guy. Or, you know what, I go to porn because I like porn. Or I drink because, you know what, it may help relax me. They don't understand they're running away from pain. So first and foremost, we have to teach them that. They have to understand. And the question always becomes, what are you running from? And in many cases, you're going to get guys who are going to say, running from what? What do you mean running? I'm not running from anything. And as you go deeper, and I'm sure you've seen this in your practice also, you, you wind up, they, they start to uncover all of these different things that they are trying to run from. And what are they? Most of the time, they're just unresolved childhood pain points. That's what it comes down to. So we're teaching them, one, to identify, to say, oh, guess what? What are my pain points? And that's why we have to teach them about their core emotional triggers. What are the things that will get you activated that you'll start to get, your anxiety will start to grow and intensify? And when that happens, what the way to, to stop the whole issue is we teach them to sit and process this pain, whatever it may be, after they identify it. And what they come to understand is it won't kill them. It's going to feel discomfort, but that's okay. That's part of maturing. You know, and maturity is a big factor here because we are emotionally immature. So we learn to sit with the pain. And then the next step is, okay, let's rationalize what's really happening. So I want to move away from my emotional thinking state and I want to go to a rational thinking state. So it becomes, what do I feel? Okay, I feel rejected. I feel unloved. I feel, I feel ignored. But what's reality? And in many times you're going to find that what we feel versus what is real are two different things. And what's happened is our emotions, which can run amok, have left us thinking the worst case scenario to the circumstance that just happened when that's not really the case. So they have to learn then to be able to sit and compare what I feel, what is real. And this way then what we're doing, you notice what, what I'm doing here with everything? is I'm slowing everything down. By slowing everything down, I become more mindful and I can start to really truly evaluate my emotions to determine, are they accurate? Because in many cases, they're not. They don't match up with what reality is. Indeed. I remember when I was a child, many, many, many moons ago, <laughs> <laughs> I was exposed to pornography. It was um, magazines and then later met, I upgraded to what they call beta tapes. Most of the audience won't recognize what tapes are. What I mean when I say such things, as we're a digital media now versus physical media, but now it's just so readily available. At any given time, you can find hundreds and hundreds of free websites that feed pornography, Pornhub and XXX hamsters, etc. Um, even YouTube might slip and allow some pornography to um, come into play unless you uh, until it's flagged. With so much exposure, why do you think it's important for people to not 
adhere to pornography, not watch pornography? What is the impact or what is the damage that pornography does on the human psyche? Well, there's, there's, there's many things. And my gosh, we could sit here for two hours and I could start to explain a lot of that for you. But I'll just try to go to the highlight. Um, one, it distorts the view of sex. Sex is just simply a physical act. There's nothing emotionally intimate about it. And my belief is, I believe that God designed sex for us, not just to procreate children, but also to strengthen the emotional bond between a man and a woman, right? So one, what happens, it distorts it. People are not people, people are things. There's the objectification that happened. And you know what's so sad right now is that because, like you said, our ability to obtain pornography with just the click of a button is so prevalent. And younger, and kids are seeing it at younger and younger ages. In fact, the latest research shows usually it's about the age 10 or 11, even though there are kids as young as four and five who are who have come across pornography. But 10 or 11, what we're doing, if we're, we're a society that's teaching little boys, it's okay to objectify little girls. But even worse than that, if we're teaching little girls, it's okay to be objectified. Can you imagine what this is going to do to our society? It's already started. We're seeing it already with Generation X and Y and what's happening there, where, where they're not learning how to be able to be emotionally connected with one another. They're more focused on the physical aspects of it. You know, so therefore, it distorts how a person sees sex. What it also does, it distorts the way they look at their partner, because it's like, wow, you know what? You don't look the same way as the women that are in, in pornography. Your body's not the same. Though now we have, you know, image shaming that's going on. We find men who are who are coercing women into doing sexual acts that they see in porn that women would never think of doing, and then they feel so shamed themselves along the way. So seeing that men, young boys in their in their teen years, were watching porn four or five hours a day and masturbating three, four, five times, maybe even seven times a day. What's happening if we're watching and seeing that the incident of erectile dysfunctioning is showing up in, in people as young as 18, 18 to 21. I mean, before that was unheard of, but that's what it is now. We're starting to see that. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. As I said, we could go on forever talk about what the devastating impact of porn is on an individual. The most important, though, too, is the idea that it's something that they become more obsessed by, and so therefore maybe they don't pay as much attention to their work or their school or their family because they're too busy engaging in their porn use. Indeed, indeed. The point that you make regarding how it changes, how they view sexuality and how it impacts relationships is a very strong, strong point. I want to go back to something we said earlier regarding how there's a high correlation between addiction 
and trauma, that the trauma they experience usually correlates strongly with why they have a addicted personality or choose addictions such as alcohol or stimulants or depressants. In your practice, you probably noted a high correlation that normally doesn't even come out until way, way into the process. I guess when they trust you or when they feel open enough because society is so damning to when a male is traumatized or sexually abused, they'll sympathize all day with a woman. And I'm not saying that. I'm not just saying this to be sexist by any means. This is just my observations and practice for over you know, 15 years. But when a man is sexually abused, it doesn't seem to get the same, doesn't warrant the same emotional support, or at least that's what we've been told or what we feel as men. I find it very rare for a man to step forward and say he's been sexually abused or sexually traumatized, but I can see telltale signs of it, but often way before they even verbalize it. One of my clients who recently passed, he, he hinted at it and it took him a long time before him to actually come out at it. And then and finally admitting that he had acting out behaviors based on it currently, but would never ever identify or tell to anyone except for somebody he knows who would not judge him or who has a rapport with him, who's only going to help him through his issues and not judge him by his issues, but never would come forth, not even admitting it to himself that he had these tendencies or that he would you know, adhere to a, a label of being gay or bisexual just by saying just the, the, the acts that he would describe he was doing or being received instead of what he was doing. I say all that to say this. How can we teach? What do we as a society need to do to teach men, boys, adolescent males to be more vocal, to be more verbal, to be more sharing and avoid the impact of the stigma to don't let the stigma keep you from getting the help you need. Don't let the judgment or the supposed labels keep you from getting the help you need. Dr. Eddie, what can we, you as a clinician, myself as a clinician, as our fellow clinicians, what can we do to help these people see that? You know, we could be out there communicating, you know, whether it's through our blogs or shows like this, that, you know what, when it came to the abuse that you went through, it was not your fault. And I mean, even if you wound up feeling a sense of pleasure from, from what happened, it still was not your fault. Okay, you were abused. Somebody took advantage of you. And you have to separate that from yourself. And to understand that, oh, you know what? If I go and I talk to a professional who knows about trauma, that they can help me walk through this guilt and shame I have. Because look, the, the reason most men don't come in is because of the shame that you mentioned. And you know what? A lot of times that shame is driven by family members. I got, I heard a story that was from a client a few years ago. Um, he was eight years old and a boy who was 14 in his neighborhood anally raped him. He went home. He was hurting. He was bleeding. He comes in and crying. Mother, what's wrong? He, he said, you know, he told him, told her what happened. She took him into the bathroom. There's blood all over the place. 
you know, she looks at it and she goes, what did you do? And immediately he like, he's like, he feels like this is my fault. I did something wrong. My father saying I did something wrong. So after she cleaned him up, not talking to him the entire time, this stern look on her face, like this sense of disgust, I'm disgusted with you. That's the look. She said to him, we will not talk about this again. Do not mention it to anyone. And that was it. And he had to go off on his own to try to learn how to sit with the pain and to deal with it. And it caused him, as you can imagine, so many problems as a teenager, young man, and into his adult years. But see, that's the thing about what keeps men from seeking the help is the shame. And we as clinicians have to be having the voice that's out there to say, you have nothing to be ashamed of because you did nothing wrong. And that's part of the process of getting men to start opening up more about this. Indeed, indeed. I hope that people get that message. And like you said, blogs and podcasts and media are helpful or can be helpful regarding reducing the stigma and for people to reach out and get the help they need. You know what also it is? It's also clinicians who've been through it themselves. I've, I've never been sexually abused, but if I was, I would share it. I would talk about it. I mean, uh, God, God knows I talked about my sexual addiction and my pornography addiction in my first book of removing your shame label. You know what? We have to put ourselves out there for people to see that, hey, guess what? Just because we struggle with something doesn't mean our life cannot be healed. Doesn't mean that we can't be able to move on, be in loving relationships, and to have an abundant life. Right, right. Your book, so you have two books. Please tell us about your I have, actually have three. Oh. Um, the first book, <laughs> the first book is Removing Your Shame Label, uh, Breaking Free of Shame and Feeling God's Love, which is about the idea of, again, how shame can just cripple us. The second book is the book we've been talking about today. Why, um, actually, why? Well, there's two. One, my latest book is Why. Men struggle to love, and that's a, uh, overcoming relational blind spots. In fact, I have a copy here because it just came out Monday, um, and that is about men not being able to, you know, they have low emotional IQs and not being able to connect and what they can do. And then the second book was the uh, going deeper, how the inner child impacts your sexual addiction, and what that book was about is the idea of why. Why do I struggle with this disorder? Why does sex have a stronghold on me? And therefore understanding, because I believe, you know, you know, when, when we were trained, we were trained, you know, don't ask the why question. Don't say anything, no why question. Because when you say why questions, it's like you're being accusatory. I love the why question. Because what I want, I want my client to be able to seek self-reflection. I want them to gain insight. Why do I think, feel, and behave the way I do? Because I feel if we have those answers, you know what we are? We're empowered. I'm empowered now. I know why I do what I do. 
And therefore, I can make more of an effort to come up with the solutions I need to be able to deal with it. So that was, that was the second book. Again, I was going deeper, you know, how the inner child impacts your sexual addiction. You have a practice with your wife, and I'm certain, yeah. you know, um, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able to work with somebody to who you love and who working with you as you process your things that you're going through, who understands your perspective. I think therapy couples are the best. Just like I think doctor, you know, couples are the best. So, you know, I think when you have a person that pairs with you regarding what you do, that can be very beneficial because they can understand what you're going through when you're going through it. I wish more people had the support they needed or realize that they do have the support that they need if they look at it in the right places or call upon it. Right. Oftentimes we are suppress what we're feeling in order to be accepted versus hurting and crying and just mm -hmm. inside because we don't feel we can express it or we can talk about it with the other person because they may judge us. They may label us. They may put us in a box or they may not want anything else to do with it when that's not necessarily the case. And if that is the case, is that person really for you anyway? Right. 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 Yeah. I mean, the wonderful thing about uh, Terry and I in this ministry together um, is the fact that, you know, we do lean on each other. You know, who's had the rough day or I talk to me about it, tell me where, you know, what's the big struggle, what's the thing that's weighing on your mind, who's the client you can't let go of. Because the thing is, in most cases, probably 80% of our clientele, I'm working with the husband, she's working with the wife. So we've gotten consent to be able to talk and share among ourselves about what's going on in those cases, uh, which also gives us a great view, a viewpoint of what's happening from the other side. So, but you know, a lot of times you don't always get all that information that you want from your current client. And the fact that they've agreed to do this, now I can go back and say to my client, hey, you know what? There are a few details you gave me last week. And I think there were a few that you left out. Let's go back to those. So that, that, there's just a lot of wonderful things that, that, that come out of that. And, and you're right, it, it's a, it is a blessing. Uh, that we have that ability to work together. Well, thank you, Dr. Eddie, for your time today. Thank you for sharing this very important perspective. I hope that males and ladies can gain from this, get a, come across this in order to start opening up the dialogue, the discussions regarding addressing the issues that may be impacting them internally, such as their addiction to pornography or their suppressed sexuality or their over-sexuality based on the pain that they experienced in the past. Please, Dr. Eddie, any final words? Or not really final words, but any words of encouragement as we call this out? Yeah, first and foremost, I want to bring up something you just brought up. You know, I've been talking about men, but, you know, women struggle with sex and pornography addiction too. And I'm very well aware of that. It's just that I work with men. Uh, so that's why it stays there. You know, again, people feel that, you know what, this is a problem that's so shameful. This is a problem no one would understand that I will be labeled, as you mentioned, I will be labeled if I bring this out. You know what? There are so, this is an epidemic. 
This is an epidemic we're going through. You would not believe the number of people who struggle with pornography or sex addiction. People who you see all around you in work, who you see all around you in your church or in your neighborhood. All right, it's, it's everywhere. And therefore have the courage to be able to step out. Not that you have to get on the rooftop and shout it out to everybody, but step out and go get help. Go to someone who's qualified to be able to assist you so that you can get free of this bondage. Plus, at the same time, learn to be more emotionally healthy so that you can wind up living an abundant life. There's a lot of help. All you have to do is reach out for it. Indeed. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Eddie, for your time today. Thank you for your perspective. And that concludes another episode of More Than Therapy. Be well, be great.